Today we're continuing our Matthew series by looking at Matthew 11, and we're going to be looking uh, this morning at who Jesus declares himself to be, what kind of king Jesus is. So I'm just going to pray before we begin. Um, Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us your word so that we can learn about you and grow in our relationship with you. And I just pray this morning... Um, As I speak through Matthew 11, would you speak through me? Yeah, God, I just thank you that when we open your word, we're opening you and we are able to have communication with you through your Bible, through your word. And I just pray for that this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be here now, just anointing me to bring this scripture to you guys and to just... Lord, not in my strength, but in yours. May it be your words that are spoken this morning, and would your words be powerful in our hearts, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read all of Matthew 11, um, and it, you know, it's a, it's an up and down kind of passage. Um, so if you've got a Bible or, or or a phone Bible, you can do that. But it's also going to be up here. Um, so yeah, go with, go with me on this passage and then we'll dig into what it means. So it starts with Jesus and John the Baptist. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and prophets and the law prophesied. um, Sorry, I've jumped ahead. A violence and violent people have been raiding it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like a children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Woe on unrepentant towns. Then Jesus 
began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable on Sodom, for Sodom on the day of judgment, than for you. The, the Father revealed in the Son. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, there's a lot in this um, chapter, so I'm looking forward to digging it apart with you guys today. So I love how this chapter is framed with a question at the beginning from John the Baptist asking Jesus about whether he really is the Messiah. And then it ends in a beautiful way. I'm glad it ends in that way. Isn't that really nice? It's really nice, isn't it? Really nice ending um, with this amazing confirmation of, of who Jesus is and how he can transform our lives. And I'm going to structure my talk this morning. Um, I'm not going to deviate from the literary expertise of Matthew, who is absolutely fantastic in the way he and the way he writes. So I'm going to begin by looking at that question from John the Baptist, digging into the context that surrounds it so we can understand how Jesus answers it. And as part of that, I also want to address another thing that I think that we really see through John's question, the frustration that I know that we all feel when God doesn't match up to our expectations of him. Then we're going to discuss Jesus' claims, who he claims to be through this passage, and end up with the beautiful um, truth that Jesus brings us at the end in that come-to-me, well-known, for very good reason, scripture. And it summarizes the beautiful truth of what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus, and that's what we're going to be really exploring today. So let's start with a little background, because I think it's really helpful particularly when we read scripture that's quite complicated to, to understand a bit of the context that goes into it. So we've got the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were holding on to this beautiful covenant promise made between Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, right back at the very beginning of Genesis, around 2,000 years before the point that we're at in today's scripture. In Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the Jewish people have got this promise 
that God would bless Abraham's descendants, who are the Jewish people, and all the world through them. But that wasn't their present experience. That isn't where they were at at the moment. They didn't feel like they were being blessed all the time and that they were blessing everybody in the world. And the Jewish people were also expecting the Messiah. They'd been waiting a long time for that as well. Lots of waiting going on here. Hundreds of years throughout the Old Testament, um, the Jewish people are given multiple prophecies, possibly around 400 prophecies about God sending a Messiah, meaning an anointed one, to deliver them. And you can imagine that if things were bad in your life, like they were for the Jewish people who were oppressed under the Roman rule, you'd be holding on to those prophecies pretty, pretty tight and waiting for the Messiah to come and deliver them. But the trouble was they were not quite holding on to um, and, and seeing the, the, right, the prophecies in the right way. They were misreading the prophecies about the coming of Jesus Interestingly, studies have shown that around a third of people, a third of adults, have actually fallen out with somebody because they've misread a text message. That's probably like you lot uh, have all fallen out with somebody because you've misread a text message. It's so easy to misread things. Um, Last week, I was trying to arrange um, guides, drop-offs with with all the other mums from guides so that we don't have to go every time. And we kind of had had this elaborate WhatsApp conversation where like, yeah, you do that one, you do that one. And then after about, you know, 20 minutes of toing and froing, one of the mums suddenly went, can I just can I just clarify, what do you mean by drop off and pick up? Now, to me, drop off is like, I'm going to drop your kids off at guides and pick up is I'm going to pick your kids up and take them home. But she thought it was the other way around. Drop off was I'm going to drop them off back to you at the end and pick up is I'm going to pick them up from you and take them there. So we deranged this whole thing and it didn't work because of the misreading of the text messages. Now that's, you know, a funny example, but it is so easy to misread or misunderstand something and kind of read our own circumstances or our own experience into something. And that's the story of the Jewish people. They were groaning under hundreds of years of suffering and frustration. And they were holding on to this promise of a deliverer. But they were focusing on the wrong deliverance. They were focusing on the deliverance from their earthly enemies. They thought that, they were gonna, that Jesus was going to come and defeat the Romans. But that wasn't the deliverance that Jesus was bringing. Jesus was bringing a different deliverance. Deliverance from our slavery to sin. And they were waiting for the Messiah for the wrong thing. And really, you know, that is so common in our lives, isn't it? That we misinterpret or misunderstand something because we've read our circumstances into it. Okay, so that's the Jewish people. Then along comes John the Baptist, the one who pointed to Jesus. So from birth, John had been anointed to be, um, by God, to be the person who prepares the way um, for the Messiah. And an angel appeared to his, his dad, Zechariah, before he was born to tell him so. And you can read about that in Luke 1. Now, we hear all about stories all the time of children born into pressure from their parents to take on like a family business or become, you know, the the pop star that their parent wanted to be or to become a doctor. And that kind of living under that weight of expectation is massive. I don't know about you, but I watched the David Beckham um, documentary on Netflix. Anyone seen that? 
very interesting. Um, but um, the bit about when David Beckham talks about the pressure that his dad put on him to play football was, was pretty uncomfortable. He would literally make him play football nonstop, like no matter what the weather, before school, after school, all weekend, and criticise every little tiny thing that he did wrong, despite the fact that David was like the best player in all of the teams, you know, all through his childhood, his dad was so critical and so vigilant in making him train. And, it, you know, David said, when I was a kid, I thought my dad was a bit harsh with me at times. Sometimes I needed an arm around me instead of my dad telling me what I did wrong. Now, it worked out all right in the end for David, didn't it? But as a parent watching that, I, I just found it really uncomfortable to see that pressure that, that David was put under by his parents because, you know, thank you, God, my parents didn't put me under pressure. They let me do a drama degree, so there we go. Um, so, <laughs> yes, funny. Um, so that's kind of a modern example. But if you think back to the Jewish people waiting for the Messiah, and then you're like, John's dad and an angel appears to you and tells you your child, your son, is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. I mean, that's pretty big. Do you think he'd have kept that information to himself? Do you think he would have told some of his friends? Do you think everybody in John's community as John was going up would have been watching him and waiting for him to prepare the way for the Messiah? And But then he went went off and he began his ministries and he got a pretty good following. Things were going well. And then the baptism of Jesus. Yes. Finally, as he baptizes Jesus, he hears the everyone hears the audible voice of God saying, This is my son with whom I'm pleased. John must have at that point been thinking, This is it. This is what I've been I've been brought up for. It's finally going to happen. The Messiah has come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to make us into a great nation. And the world's going to be blessed. Hallelujah. So we're under no doubt that John clearly recognized Jesus as the Messiah. In John 1, so uh, it's, uh, we see three references in 29 to 36 that John makes to Jesus being the Messiah. And I, th- I love this, obviously, you know, I'd, I'd love to summarize it into some modern speech, but I'm going to go with what it says in the Bible. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again. Love that. He's following Jesus around. Why wouldn't you, if you thought he was the Messiah? With two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. So we can see that that John really did believe quite certainly and declare quite publicly that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he finds himself in prison. 
So Jesus has not yet raised this enemy to defeat the Romans. He's not taken over as the king of the Jewish people that they were expecting. John must have been sitting in prison thinking, okay, so when are we going to be blessed and change the whole world? Expectation, frustration. It's hardly surprising that we read in verse 2 of Matthew 11, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? John's desperate to speak to Jesus, find out what's going on. He's so desperate, he's prepared to admit to his followers, to his disciples, that he's having doubts, which must have been pretty embarrassing, bearing in mind they're his disciples. They've literally been hanging off his every word and following him around. So for John to now admit to them that he was having doubts about what he's been saying and so confidently going around declaring, that must have been pretty humbling. It reminds me of the numerous U-turn decisions that Boris Johnson had to make during the COVID pandemic. No, we don't need to wear masks. Oh, actually, yes, we're going to wear masks. No, 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 it's fine. You guys go back to work. No, actually, don't go back to work yet. Stay working from home. No, no, we don't need a second lockdown. Oh, actually, yeah, yes, we do, we do need a second lockdown. So, so John, humbled by his doubts, sends two of his disciples from where he is in prison in Herod's palace to Jesus, who's preaching in the towns of Galilee. So this is probably about a five-day round-trip walking. So it's not like a small, just pop and see Jesus. And he, he tells them to ask Jesus a few questions like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? Are you actually the Messiah? Have I kind of got ahead of myself here? Have I mixed you up with somebody else? Surely there must be somebody else, because you're just not what I was really expecting. By way of a hands up, who's been frustrated or confused in life by God's timing? God's plan for yourself or people that you're close to. God not answering your prayers in the way that you want him to. Not getting the answer to the why questions that you really need from God. It may feel kind of disrespectful or hard to admit when we're in church or with our Christian brothers and sisters that we can be frustrated or confused by God. But I know from seeing all of your hands up and mine that it's a common experience in the journey of being a Christian. You don't have to get very far into reading Psalms to see that, do you? And we see today in this first section, this great man of the Bible, John the Baptist, clearly experiencing expectation, frustration when Jesus, the Messiah that he'd spent his whole life telling people was coming, was not doing what he thought he was going to do. And I think that the way that Jesus responds to John the Baptist's question, which was no doubt potentially publicly pretty embarrassing for Jesus to get, you know, he was asked this publicly, um, hey, John the Baptist, who's been going around for years saying that you're coming and then declared that you're the Messiah. Yes, that John, he's not actually sure anymore that you are actually the Messiah. So kind of what's going on, Jesus? Yeah, I think that the way that Jesus responds to John's question and then publicly affirms him in verse 11 when he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist I think that shows that it's okay with God for us to admit that maybe we're confused or frustrated by him, that we've got questions or doubts. 
Jesus could, and this is probably how lots of worldly leaders would, would re, you know, respond to this kind of public criticism. He could have shamed him. He could have shamed him publicly and said, ye of little faith, or something like that. You know, he, and yet he honors John, publicly elevates the respect for him in what he says. And I, I just think it's beautiful. Jesus honors John's honesty in coming to him with questions and doubts. What were John's options when he had doubts? He could have just slipped away, stopped seeking the Lord. He could have stood up against Jesus publicly and said, Jesus is not fulfilling the prophecies. I was wrong. He could have got angry and resentful about it, but instead he took the time and effort to be honest with Jesus and seek him with his doubts. And it's, that's a beautiful picture of what we should do when we face questions, doubts, frustrations with God. Seek God, ask our questions present our doubts, and trust God. Jesus himself demonstrates this in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was crucified when he went to pray. And he asked God, is there another way? Like, I, I'm not, I don't like this way. This is, he was very human in that moment, facing the crucifixion when he come and questions Jesus, brings his doubts, uh, press, questions God and, and brings his doubts. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. Jesus was fully human in that moment, and he was pleading with God for another way. He brought his human feelings to God. And then as Jesus responds to John, he honors John for that, that, that he's prepared to do that. Okay, so we can see that Jesus is not the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting or that John was expecting. But then Jesus goes on and does clearly say that he is the Messiah. So that's our first claim of Jesus, that he is the Messiah. John didn't expect him to be like this. The Jews didn't expect him to be like this. We often don't expect God to be the way that he is or act in the way that he's acting but Jesus does claim that he's the Messiah, although not in an obvious way, which you've been a Christian for a while, probably won't come as a surprise to you, rather than saying, don't worry, John, I'm the Messiah, which would have been potentially a really easy thing for him to say. He's more ambiguous. God does work in clear and obvious ways, but he often makes things a bit more ambiguous because he wants us to go on the journey and get to the place of trusting him and having faith. It makes me think of when my kids ask the question, is the tooth fairy real? You know, it'd be so easy for me to, to answer that question one way or the other, depending on your moral compass, on the tooth fairy. But in fact, I always say, what do you think? Does the money appear under your pillow? Does the tooth disappear? Now, that's just a bit of fun, but I want my kids to figure it out for themselves, one way or another, to have faith if they want to have faith. Or reject the claims if they choose not to answer. And that's so often the way that God is with us. He gives us some really obvious evidence, but also some, some evidence that doesn't make sense. And there's lack of evidence, or we're just left with a question. And then he leaves it for us to make that final judgment. And that is the faith that saves us. So Jesus, rather than saying, I am he, in verse 4 to 5, says, Go back and report to John what you see and hear the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What's Jesus done? 
he tells John's disciples to report to John the miracles and the powerful works that Jesus and the message that Jesus has been proclaiming. And Jesus is doing more than just telling John what he's doing. He's referencing um, the Old Testament prophecies that point to the, at the work of the Messiah, what the Jewish people would be expecting from the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, talking about the coming of the Messiah, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. John the Baptist would have no doubt poured over the, the Old Testament scriptures, knowing what his job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. So he would recognize, this, recognize those scriptural quotations and realize that Jesus is claiming to be that fulfillment of the prophecies. The verses around those verses in Isaiah also speak of God's judgment. And I think that's what the Jewish people were expecting when the Messiah came in the first time. God's judgment and eradication of the enemy. And in, um, in verses 24, 20 to 24 of Matthew, which I read this morning, that bit's uncomfortable. That bit talks about the judgment to come. And I think that Jesus, in referencing that Isaiah scripture, which John would have known, is saying, look, I am the Messiah. These, these um, things, these miracles that you're seeing point to the Messiah, that the I am the Messiah. And the judgment will come. That's the second coming. And he's pointing to that. So Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And I am the judge. And I, and I will be the judge in times to come. God will often be unexpected in the way that he works in, his, in our lives because his ways are so much better than our ways, even when we find it difficult to see why. The Jewish people here were wanting their deliverance from their earthly enemies. But what Jesus, the Messiah, was giving them was that he was sent by God to deliver them from something even greater. And that's the final claim that Jesus makes, that he is the saviour. And the chapter ends with Jesus declaring in this beautiful and poetic way that he is our saviour and he invites us all to come and to be in a relationship with us. In verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. I don't know about you, but when I was a small child, I absolutely loved Christmas. I do still love Christmas, but it's got a different feel when you're an adult to when you're a child. You know, when you're a kid, it's just perfect. Everything feels so Christmassy. The lead up and the excitement is just off the scale. Our eldest daughter, Libby, um, said the other day, Christmas just didn't feel as Christmassy this year. It made me feel sad because I was like... I wonder if this is the beginning of the fading of the Christmas feeling. Um, and what is it that holds us adults back from enjoying Christmas like the children? Is it because we're like overanalyzing and overthinking and overorganizing? And is this going to work? And what about this? And and I've got to put we, we, we overthink Christmas. And that's my thought on why we can't enjoy it like the kids who just throw themselves into it. And um, in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
such an arrogant question. And Jesus said, and Jesus called a little child to him and placed this child among them. Now, we live in a society that elevates children. Children are special. Children are important. Children, we, we, we as parents, they're like up on a pedestal and our whole lives goes around the children. That wouldn't have been the case in the times of the Bible. Children were less important. Children were kept out of important situations. Um, And so it's important to know that, to read the context of this, the fact that Jesus, knowing that children were, were valued low in that society, brings this child among them and says to them, truly, I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that would have been a pretty radical thing to say in that society. You know, it's interesting how so many children, well, certainly young children, um, seem to just assume that God is real. I guess it could be argued that it's the same as their belief in Father Christmas or the Tooth Fairy. But they just have that innocence and they believe Without much question, I teach um, a lot of RE and French in primary schools, and I teach all the years, years three up to year six, and it's, it's amazing. My school is not a faith school, and yet the vast majority of the children in my classes, and I know they're not practicing, you know, going to, they don't go to church as a family, or they're not of any other religion, but they believe in, but they believe in God. They, they seem to generally believe in God. Um, a few weeks ago, we were discussing the question in our Nari lesson, we're looking at big questions, of whether there's an afterlife. And I was asking them if there was actually any actual evidence for heaven. Now, to us wise, learned adults, we know that there's, we could, there's no scientific evidence for heaven, right? No scientific evidence for heaven unless somebody's got some for me. No actual physical scientific evidence. And... The whole kids, every kid in the classroom, I'm not joking, every single kid was like, yes, there is heaven, and yes, there is evidence for heaven. And we, we got into this really interesting conversation where we were debating, like, what is, you know, what, what evidence do you have then for heaven? And this one child, not from a faith family, says, of course there's an afterlife, because Jesus went up to heaven, and Jesus is therefore the proof of the afterlife because Jesus came from God and there is actual historical evidence that Jesus lived in the world and then that's therefore actual evidence for an afterlife. You know, can you imagine if that was said at an adult dinner party? Can you imagine like the response to that as like, this, this is actual evidence. But, but these kids were so sure of their actual evidence. They were like, yes, yes, of course there's an afterlife. And... You know, perhaps that's what Jesus is su- suggesting in this scripture when he says we need to become like children. You know, Jesus isn't saying that it's a bad thing to be intelligent or educated. In fact, Jesus was a teacher. He went around for his whole life teaching people, allowing them to ask him questions and answering their questions. So Jesus is certainly not anti-education. Um, but He's saying that we need to become childlike in our minds to truly encounter God. Let go of our adult educated need to evidence absolutely everything, to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with your mind or with God. Today we see John in that situation. He was wrestling. Are you really the Messiah? And what does he do? He reached out to God 
He reached out to Jesus. And that's what we need to do. And then adopt that mindset of a child, that, that, that mindset of trust, willingness to come to him, the Messiah, with our questions and depend on him. And not on our own knowledge and understanding. I'm not saying that's easy. It's, it's definitely not easy. But I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves of all the time. Because the enemy would love to take us out of the family of God. Hold on there. If you feel like you're on that journey, and I'd love to pray with you at the end, and I'm sure other people would love to pray with you. If you feel like you're really wrestling with doubts, frustrations, and questions. The landing of this passage comes in verses 28 to 30, where Jesus demonstrates what kind of beautiful saviour he is when he says, come to me. I've, I've, I've done lots of underlining on here. I don't know about you, but I like underlining and highlighting things in my Bible. Now, this is just one of those scriptures where it's like you start just underlining and or like highlighting a couple of bits, and then you're like, ah, just highlight the whole thing. It's all amazing, and which is uh, in fact what I have done. I don't know when, but at some point in my Bible, not when I was preparing for this preach, that whole bit there is highlighted in pink. It's just awesome. Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. It's an invitation to salvation for all who are tired and weary of what the world has to offer. Jesus saves us from the world. He doesn't say, come to me when you're sorted. Come to me when you've got the answers to all your questions. Come to me when all, you are well, when all is well. His invitation is just that we come, all of us. He says, come when you're weary and you're burdened. That sounds like we're welcome to come if we're battling through life without hope. He's calling those who are trying to battle through life in their own strength. And finding it hard. You know, when kids fall over and they're crying, we open our arms and we say, come here, come, come, come to mummy. Or come, you know, I'm a teacher as well. Come to me, come, come. And we're not going to beckon them over and then go, you'll be right, off you go. You know, we beckon them over and say, come to me. Or maybe sometimes a bit of tough love comes out. But, you know, generally, if they're really hurt, not like a paper cut, we're going to say, come to me, come here. I'm going to give you a cuddle. I'm going to wipe your wounds. I'm going to dress your wounds. And then I'm going to hold you until you feel better. And that's Jesus' invitation. This part of what Jesus was saying is in no way ambiguous, like his kind of claims to being a Messiah, which needed unpacking. He doesn't need any interpretation. It's so clear the invitation he just gives to us all to come, no matter what, and he will give you rest. Maybe you're here today and you've never fully given your life to Jesus to find that inner peace and rest that Jesus says he has to offer. You've got to first make that decision to commit your life to him. Make it like a child that doesn't need every single tiny bit of evidence. Just trust. Go on that journey and see what God does. 
He's inviting you to come to him. Maybe you're in the middle of a time of great trial in your life. Maybe that trial has been going on for years. You feel like you're a swan trying to float serenely whilst paddling madly underwater. God doesn't want us to live in that state. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He may be able to take you out of your trials, but equally he may not take you out of his trials, but he's going to give you what you need to get through those trials the strength, the power, the wisdom to walk through. And and you're not walking alone. He's walking with you. He tells us that we will learn from him and find rest from our souls. And that speaks of an ongoing relationship with the one that brings light into the darkness and teaches us to walk through life and renews us. He says he's gentle and humble. He isn't someone we've got to impress, someone we can just be ourselves with like John was, and grow because of our relationship with him. What a beautiful saviour Jesus is. I love those verses. What a beautiful saviour Jesus is. Jonathan, if you want to come up, we're going to end our meeting today by taking communion, which I think is just the most perfect way to respond to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. Maybe, as I said, you've never committed your life to Jesus. You can use taking communion today as a moment to do that. A moment to say, Jesus, I want to come to you. I want you to help me walk through life. I can't do it in my own strength. I want to learn from you. That's all you need to do to admit that and say, Jesus, come into my life. And I'd love to pray with you, if that is you as well. And for anyone here who's feeling weary or burdened today or struggling with questions or expectation frustration, we can use this communion moment to bring those feelings to the Messiah, to God, to our Saviour. So take this communion as a moment, even in your weakness. Jesus says, come to me. This is what I've got to offer you. Don't hold it in. Don't let it choke you. Jesus can handle it. Jesus can, he, he handled being crucified and popped back three days later. He can handle your frustrations. We need to learn from John and bring it to him and he will honor you for your honesty. Share it with somebody here. When we take communion, we remember what Jesus did for us and how he transforms our lives, and how in him we find rest for our souls.